Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. And I'll read the text in just a minute. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that uh, the verses that we looked at were verses 21 to 23, where Paul sends his greetings from his co-workers in Corinth. Now, originally I intended to finish up the book of Romans last week, uh, starting in verse 21 and going on to 27. Uh, I had two headings in mind. The first I was going to call Greetings from Corinth, and the second was going to be Glory to God. But as I looked at the passage, I decided there was just too much there to get in one sermon. Uh, And so I thought to myself, well, it's going to require a whole sermon just to deal with the doxology of the last three verses in the Bible. So I'll I'll finish up the series of Romans uh, next week, and then we'll go on to the book of Joel. But then I started to tear in to the text again this week and ponder all these things that Paul was saying in his praise to God for the gospel. And three images kept coming to my mind. A box of grape nuts, the Louvre Museum, and the Grand Canyon. And I thought, it's going to take more than one sermon to finish these three verses. Now you're thinking a box of grape nuts? This doxology in verse 25 to 27 makes you think of a box of grape nuts? What are grape nuts and why does it remind me of these verses? Well, grape nuts is an American breakfast cereal made by the Post Company. What's strange about it is called grape nuts, but it has neither grapes nor nuts in it. It's actually made of a combination of wheat and barley and sugar. Well, they look like chopped nuts because the loaves that they're made out of are twice baked and then they're run through a giant grinder. So they look like they're nuts when they're done. Well, the cereal was invented in 1897, and it has a real storied history. Grape Nuts was, sponsor, was a sponsor of Admiral Byrd in 1933 when he took his trip to the South Pole. And when Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay went to the top of Mount Everest, they brought Grape Nuts to power them along the way. Now, I don't remember the first time I tried Grape Nuts, but I am absolutely certain that my older brother does. He spent the night at the neighbor's house, and he had cereal, grape nuts, for breakfast in the morning. He was hungry, so he filled his bowl all the way to the top. Now, if you've ever eaten grape nuts, you know that nobody eats a whole bowl of grape nuts. They're so dense and so filling that a quarter of a cup is plenty. And that's why the box is small. If I remember correctly, my brother did manage to finish the bowl, but I don't think he's eaten them since because he's probably still full. Oh, the Louvre Museum. That's in France. When Suzanne and I visited Jeff and Dina when they were living in England, we went over to the continent to do a tour, and one of the places we stopped was at the Louvre in Paris. Uh, We were there for several hours, but we didn't see everything because there's 35,000 different pieces on display, and if you only took 30 seconds to look at each one, it would take you 200 days to see them all. The Grand Canyon. In Arizona, it's 277 miles long and on average 10 miles across. At the deepest point, it's 6,000 feet. It covers more ground than the state of Rhode Island. What a majestic view. And yet, in one of the viewing sites, they measured to see how long a person stayed to look at it, and on average, it was only 15 minutes. So here, in this final doxology, I think of grape nuts and louvre, and Grand Canyon. Like grape nuts, the truths found in these three verses are so dense and calorie-packed that if you try, I try to give it to you all in one sermon, you're going to leave half of it in your bowl. It's more than you can digest in one sitting. 
and a fly through these verses in 35 minutes would be like looking at the artwork of God's grace and taking a whirlwind tour through the Louvre. And to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon of God's salvation provided through Christ and spend only a half hour gazing at it seems like a squandered opportunity and also the height of ingratitude. Paul was thrilled with the truths found in Romans and he sums them up in the last three verses of the book and he wants his readers to thrill in them as well. So rather than finish with Romans this week, we're going to linger on for a couple more weeks marveling at and delighting in the truths that Paul celebrates as he closes his letter. And for those of you who are excited and anticipating going into Joel and the locust plagues, you'll just have to wait a little longer. So why don't we pray and then get into the text now. Our Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us as we look at it. It is a wonderful text, and it's a celebration that Paul makes uh, in what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So bless us now, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, these three verses function as a doxology. The word doxology has two parts to it, two Greek words. Doxa, which means glory, and the second part, ology, means study, like in from logos. And it means the study of something, like the biology is the study of life, or psychology is the study of the mind. A doxology is a hymn of praise to God for who he is and for what he's done. Now listen to Paul, his celebratory song in these words, starting in the verse there. It says, Now to him, verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of this mystery, which was, has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifest by the scripture of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. Well, in these verses, Paul's describing glory to God for the gospel. But the part we want to focus in on is just the first part of verse 25, where he says, now to him who is able to establish us according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So let's break that into three parts. And here's the first part. Now to him who is able. By the way, the him here is speaking about God, specifically God the Father. And the word that's translated as able is dunamai, uh, which means power or, or ability. That's where we get the English word dynamite from. Uh, trivia question here, who, invited, or who invented dynamite? Do you know? It was a Swedish chemist named Alfred Nobel uh, back in 1866. Now, when he, uh, news of his death came out, the French newspapers ran stories about him, and they referred to him as the merchant of death, saying, quote, he became rich by finding a way to kill more people faster than ever before. But there was a problem. Alfred Nobel wasn't dead. It was his brother Ludwig who died, and the papers got the story wrong. But when he read what was written about him, it really shook him up. He had always opposed war, and he didn't want to be remembered this way. So he decided to leave his immense fortune to foster science, literature, and peace. Every year, they hand out what's called the Nobel Peace Prize. Now here, Paul praises God's power and his ability to accomplish his will. And you know, in the scripture, uh, when God wants to emphasize the greatness of his power, he often does so by pointing to the fact, quote, that I made the earth and created man on it, and it was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts, as it says in Isaiah 45, 12. Of course, God showed his power and his ability when he destroyed Egypt and delivered Israel from bondage to Pharaoh. And then when Israel came out against the sea, and it looked like they were going to be wiped out, 
by the Egyptians, God intervened. And as Charlton Heston said in the movie, Behold his mighty hand! And as impressive as the special effects were in that movie, I'm sure the real thing was even more awe-inspiring. Well, you know, a good portion of what faith involves is believing that God can do the possible, impossible. The other portion is believing and being convinced that God will do the impossible. I mean, think about that leper who, when Jesus was walking by, said, Lord, if you were willing, you could make me clean. He had faith. But the very next story after that shows a man of even greater faith because the Roman centurion had a servant who was suffering. And he sent a message, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He not only believed that Jesus could heal him, but that Jesus would heal him if he just simply knew about it. He trusted not only in God's and Christ's power, but also in his goodness, because he's good, and he's kind, and he's merciful. So faith is banking on the power and the goodness of God. And oh, how it pleases God when we put all of our confidence in him, no matter what the obstacles we face. When we act like Abraham did, when it says, in hope against hope, he believed God so that he would become the father of many nations according to that which was written, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith and contemplating his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that God what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 18 to 21. It's otherwise, it's looking at your circumstances that seem so impossible and saying, God can do it. I know he can do it. And not only that, but I know he will do it. Well, here in this doxology, what Paul's celebrating is God's ability, and this is our second point, to establish you according to my gospel. What does it mean when we talk about establishing something? To establish means, according to dictionary.com, to set up on a firm basis for an enduring existence. Merriam-Webster's dictionary says it's to bring into being to found, like, for instance, to establish a colony. The pilgrims, they landed in America in 1620 with the hope of establishing a colony where they'd be able to free, uh, be free to practice their own religion. Did you know that of the 102 who got off the Mayflower, 45 of them died that first winter. You know, when it came to the Mayflower, though, all the people who came over were not Christians. And the difference between the believers and the unbelievers became evident during that first terrible winter. One man who was part of the ship's crew in his bitterness continued to mock the Christians, but then he himself fell sick, and the pilgrims took care of him. Listen to the words of William Bradford in his diary about this. He said, quote, But such of the passengers as were on board showed that uh, showed them what mercy they could, which made some of their hearts relent, as the boatswain, that's a boatman, and some of the others, who was pr a proud young man and who would often curse and scoff at the passengers. But when he grew weak, they had compassion on him and helped him, and then he confessed and, that he did not deserve it at their hands, uh, for he had abused them in word and deed. Oh, saith he, you, I now see, show your love like Christians indeed to one another, but we... Show, uh, treat each other and lie and die like dogs. When Paul is praising God for his ability to establish us, he means establish us in our faith, and he does so according to or in connection with or by means of the gospel. 
Do you remember what Paul said back in Romans 1, 16 and 17? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, or by it, the righteousness of God is being revealed, just as it's written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You see, it's through the gospel that sinners are converted, confirmed, and consummated in regard to their salvation. Let's consider each of those for a moment. Converted by the gospel. I'll tell you something. Despite the transgender propaganda, the truth remains that every one of us has been born of one father and one mother. But when we're born again, it's by the Spirit through the Word. In writing to the Christians to encourage them to love one another, Peter said this, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified yourself for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and the enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flowers of the grass. The glory wither, or the grass withers, the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this was the word that was preached to you, 1 Peter 1, 22-23. James tells us that in the exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth, that we would be, as it were, a firstfruits among his creatures. Now, if you're a believer, do you remember when and how it was that you got saved? However, or whenever it happened, I know that it was as a result and at the time of listening to or reading the gospel, message of Jesus. I mean, when you heard and understood Christ crucified for sinners as the payment for sins, the Holy Spirit at that moment opened up your eyes to see, your mind to understand, and your heart to respond so that you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. Sometimes people in church or family members will tell me they went to a funeral. And I always ask them the same question. Did the pastor preach the gospel? Oh yeah, he did. Okay, did he explain how it was that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve for our sins and that when we believe in Christ, God credits or imputes Jesus' righteousness to our account. Well, no, he didn't explain all of that. Well, then he didn't give the gospel. If you don't explain the cross, you have not given the gospel. The reason that there's so many people sitting in churches week after week who are not saved is because they don't hear the gospel because it's not preached. The gospel itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The second thing, though, he tells us is that we're confirmed by the gospel. By the way, which is the correct way to say this? I have been saved, I am being saved, or I shall be saved? Well, the correct answer is all three. I have been saved in the sense that I've been justified, declared righteous. It happened the first instant I trusted in Christ as my Savior. As we sing in our songs to celebrate this, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon, receives. But Paul also speaks about salvation as an ongoing process. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. He says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached by which you, uh, and which you received and in which you stand, by which you are, present tense, being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We have been saved in that we've been justified. We're being saved in that we're sanctified. That is, made more 
like Jesus in our character. Sanctification is that process by which God gets sin out of our life and puts Christ-like moral qualities into our life. And whatever our difficulties, whatever our hardships, we know that God is causing all things to work to good, for good, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And honestly, folks, sometimes it's not just through tragic things that cause us to draw close to Christ. Sometimes it's just the daily grind of life that God uses to shift and shape and polish us. Did you ever have a a rock polisher when you were a kid or have one in school? You remember how they work? You take some agates or some quartz and you put them in there and you put a scoop of grit in. I'm not sure what it is, probably pumice or something like that. And then you put some water and then you turn it on and it makes the sound. And how long do you let that run? Week, two weeks, three weeks. And afterwards you pull it out and that grit and the abrasive had polished it down so it's smooth and beautiful. That's what God's doing in our lives. The author of Hebrews calls this process discipline, and he reminds us that it's not only necessary for us, but it's highly valuable. He writes to the Christians who are chafing under God's discipline, but he says this, you've forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to you as sons. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those who the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. Reminds me of a story of a black guy who was an author, and his dad was in. He ended up in prison. I think he ended up in prison himself. But he said he'll never forget the day that his dad left. He was walking down the road. I think they lived in Mississippi. And he said, I was just bawling and bawling and bawling. And I was following after him. And my dad said, no, go back with your auntie. And he said, I wouldn't. But he said he came out and he spanked me and sent me back. He said, you know what? Even in that spanking, he was proving that he was my father and that I was his child. You see, if you're a Christian, there's things that you do that you can't get away with because God deals with you. And you think, well, my neighbor, he's not a Christian. He does these things. Nothing bad seems to happen to him. Yeah, that's because I didn't discipline the neighbor kids. I only disciplined my own. He says this. It says, it was for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there that a father doesn't discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you've become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, you're not actually a Christian. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. So much more, rather, should we be subject to the Father of spirits and live. For they disciplined us for a short time it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. 1 Peter 5, 10 to 11 says this, And the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory, after you've suffered for a little while, will himself restore and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. You know, like a, a, a silversmith. God knows how and when to turn up the heat through the events of your life. 
and how long it takes to burn off those impurities. And I read somewhere the way that a silversmith does this, because you have to burn off the impurities. When it's all done burning off, if he looks down and he can see his reflection, he knows that the impurities are gone. That's the way God is with us. When he looks down and sees the reflection of Christ coming back to him, he knows that his work has been completed. But this purifying work goes on throughout all of our life. We have been justified, we're being sanctified, and we shall be glorified. God's work of establishing us in salvation will not be completed until Jesus returns and we've been resurrected. We've been converted, we're being confirmed, and we shall be consummated in our salvation at the end. And oh, how glorious that moment will be. I mean, wanting his readers to marvel at what that future prospect is, John wrote this, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it does not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it's not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. Think about how a film camera works. You have the celluloid inside the, uh, the celluloid film inside the camera casing. And then when you push a button, a flash goes off, and at that moment, the shutter opens up, allowing the light to come in. And when that light hits the film, it causes a chemical reaction which burns that image into the film. When Jesus returns, the flash of glory and our sight of it will burn his image, moral image, into us and we will instantly be transformed from that point and bear the image of Christ forever. So Paul's praising God the Father for his ability to establish Christ's followers in faith by converting, confirming, and finally consummating their salvation. And our assurance that this is actually going to take place and be fulfilled are found in verses like this in Philippians 1.6. For I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who called you and he will bring it to pass. Jesus said, all the Father gives to me will come to me. And those who come to me I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, do you think Jesus is going to lose any of his sheep? Absolutely not. All the elect will be called in. That brings us to our third point, though. Paul says this happens through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Many are familiar with Ben Shapiro, he's a conservative political commentator and a podcaster who happens to be an Orthodox Jew. On one of his podcasts a couple years ago, he interviewed John MacArthur, a pastor. And they covered a wide range of topics, the role of religion, politics, homosexuality, abortion. But at one point, Shapiro said this, quote, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the differences between Judaism and Christianity. Because in so much of this stuff, we're on the same page, considering that legitimately half the book is the same, meaning the Old Testament. But when it comes to the distinction between Judaism and Christianity, whenever I hear pastors speak about Christianity, very often I think to myself, right, all that stuff uh, is in the Old Testament. Like sin has to be cleansed by God, and we have an entire day Yom Kippur uh, that's for this. And I say three uh, 
I, I say three times a paragraph about doing repentance before God, plus an additional section for repentance in the morning prayers. The idea of repenting and confessing your sins before God is endemic to Judaism and has been for thousands of years. I mean, the idea that God is sovereign, obviously both religions share. So philosophically speaking, putting aside the basic crux of belief in one story or one historical incident, if you were to put that aside, what do you think is the key distinguishing factor between uh, the philosophy of Christianity and the philosophy of Judaism? Now, by the way, right about there, when I was listening to that again last night, I thought about Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well when he was talking about her sins and she wanted to talk about religion in general. So what about the philosophy of Christianity and the philosophy of Judaism? And at that point, MacArthur said, you know, I don't like to talk in terms of philosophy, but revelation. That same God of the Old Testament who wrote that wrote the New Testament. And then John MacArthur, starting with Isaiah 53, began to preach the gospel to Ben Shapiro. You know, that just that one YouTube video, and there's other copies of it online, over a million people have watched it. John MacArthur has been on Larry King's program. He was on there a number of times before Larry died. And uh, to debate other people, sometimes they'd have other religious leaders on there, sometimes talking about certain topics. But he said when everyone on there, he only had two points he wanted to make, and he wanted to make them over and over again. One, the Bible is the word of God. And two, Jesus is the only way to God. Well, the Apostle Paul would have been pleased with uh, MacArthur's approach because that's the same one he used. Because writing to the Corinthians, he said this, in 1 uh, Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, uh, he said this, he said, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In other words, not through all the rhetorical flourish and skill set that normal speakers at the time would have. For I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ Jesus and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And folks, it's not just that hearing the message preached about Christ converts sinners, it also sustains them. And it does so all through your life. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Most of you know that uh, a couple of months ago I met with a Catholic priest, and uh, we had an understanding at the beginning. He was going to try to convert me to Catholicism, and I was going to try to convert him to Christ. For our first meeting, we went over the section in John chapter 6, where after feeding the 5,000, Jesus said, I am the living bread who has come down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's John 6, 51. Now, in the Catholic Church, they believe in what's called transubstantiation. That's the belief that when the priest holds up the wafer and someone rings the bell, the wafer literally turns into the body of Christ. I showed him from that text and others that... Uh, we should take Jesus' words figuratively here. I mean, think about it. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He didn't have sheep following around him. He said, I am the door. He didn't mean he had hinges. But uh, I did tell the priest when we were talking, I said, I think you're right about one thing. Whatever that Jesus is speaking about here, when he speaks of feeding on him, it's absolutely necessary for a person to have eternal life. But to feed 
on Christ is not a means of divine cannibalism. Rather, it means to constantly look to, hear from, and hold on to Jesus. It's the same truth that he taught in his comment about the vine and the branches when he said this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them up, and they cast them into the fire, and they're burned. pastor was a guest speaker at a church. When he walked up to the pulpit, he noticed that on the edge right in front where he could see and no one else could, there was a Bible verse, John 12, 21, which simply says, Sir, we would see Jesus. Another pastor visiting a church in the south, he was preaching, and there was one old lady in the back, a black woman, and she kept yelling out, Lift him up! Lift him up! Get him up! Get him up! She wanted the pastor to exalt Jesus so she could exalt in Jesus. Paul praised God because he's able to establish believers through the gospel, the good news through preaching, preaching about Christ. You know, the adult Sunday school class that we're doing right now is entitled, Hallelujah, What a Savior, the Person and Work of Christ. My hope in that class is to lift up Jesus and by exalting in him, uh, exalting him, you will exalt in him. That means to thrill and to delight and to find your satisfaction. Have you ever, you ever seen those pictures where they'll take one picture of a person, famous person, another one, and then there's a panel of pictures in between so that it morphs from one into the other so it goes like from George Bush to Barack Obama? Well, there's a sense and that's what God is doing with Christians. As they look upon Christ, as we feed on him, remain in him, look to him, and behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, Paul describes this process in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says this, And we all, who with faiths, un- unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, as we're contemplating God's glory, Christ's glory, are being transformed or morphed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me ask you a question. Is that process going on in your life? It doesn't even begin until you recognize yourself as a sinner who's desperately under God's wrath and that there's no way to escape but faith in Jesus Christ. And so you have to cry out to him and ask him to save you. You need to be converted. But after that happens, you need to hear the gospel message again and again and again, the message of Christ's death as a payment for your sins. The focus of our preaching and teaching is on Jesus Christ. But let me ask you a question. Is he the focus of your listening, your loving, and your delighting? Is Jesus your hope? And is he your treasure? Feed on Christ, for by doing so, God establishes you in your faith. You know, as a pastor, one of the things I'm always doing is, you need to come to Bible study. You need to be in youth group. Oh, yeah, but I can, I can do that at home when I read my Bible occasionally. You know, come together, pray with other people. Why do I push all this? Because this is the means that you have to be saved in the end. In other words, God has determined who will be saved. He's chosen that from before the foundation of the world. But the means by which he brings people ultimately to that goal is through reading the Bible, listening to sermons, being taught, going to youth group, 
being in vacation Bible school, staying for Sunday school, those are the means. If the means are not there, the end will not be there. Now, by the way, I want to speak to those of you who are unbelievers. It's really easy to skip Bible study or any of those things because, you know, first of all, you go there and I'm telling you you're going to hell all the time. I mean, like, appreciate that, right? But to avoid the truth because you're uncomfortable with it is like going to the doctor and they tell you you've got cancer. They say, but I think we can treat this. See, you know, that, when I go there and talk to me, it depresses me. It's negative. I'm just going to stay away. You're free to do that, but that's incredibly foolish. If you're a non-Christian, put yourself in the place where you hear the word of God, ask other people to pray for you, and then call out to Jesus to save you. It's that simple. It really is that simple. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we need grace and mercy. Everyone sitting here today either knows you or they don't know you. For those who know you, we need to hear the gospel again and again because this is what we build our life on. This is what we build our hope on. This is what we look forward to when we're finally redeemed. And that's what keeps us from sinning, Lord, as we purify ourselves even as he is pure. But for those who don't know you, Lord, they need this message as well because there is no other way for people to be saved. And Father and God, if we hear the message but we shrug our shoulders, we perish. It's that simple. So Father, I pray that no one here would find themselves in that situation that they would turn to you through Jesus Christ and find the eternal life that you alone provide. Bless each one here, Lord, because we need your grace. We ask now in Christ's name and for his sake.